Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles out, open them up to the book of Romans, as you can see on the screen behind me. Romans, the sixth chapter, is where we're going to be working from this evening. We have been uh, working very uh, kind of strategically this year through the book of Romans. That is our preaching theme, the gospel according to Romans. And tonight we arrive at chapter 6. As you're turning to Romans 6, I will say how great it is to see everybody this evening. It has been a good day. It's been a beautiful day the Lord has given us, a beautiful uh, kind of beginning to the evening. And I'm glad that you've chose to, uh, to come and to be with us this evening to worship God once again. And I hope that you're ready right now to focus your minds upon the Word of God. In Romans chapter 6, I actually need to back up and grab the end of chapter 5. Let's start at the end of chapter 5 in Romans 5. Read with me in verse 20. In Romans 5 and in verse 20, now the law... The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1 now. What shall we say then? In 1763... A preacher with a really great name. His name was Augustus Toplady. He was making his way home when a violent thunderstorm came upon him. This was a bad thunderstorm. Torrential winds and rainfall. There was lightning and thunder. And Mr. Toplady actually feared for his life. But suddenly, in the midst of all of that, he was able, through the midst of all the storm and the winds and everything that was going on, he was able to see a cleft in the rocky face of the gorge that he was traveling through. And he was able, quickly enough, to rush into that gorge and to shelter himself there, right in the cleft of that rock, until the storm passed by. And as he hid himself there in the safety of that cleft, it is there that he ended up thinking of, and ultimately ended up pinning, a very famous hymn that we still sing to this very day. It was the song, Rock of Ages. The first verse of that song goes like this, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. And we sing that song from time to time. In fact, we're going to sing it at the conclusion of this lesson this evening. But I wonder how many of us have ever given any consideration to that, to that phrase there at the end of verse 1. The double cure. Be of sin the double cure. In many ways, that is an outstanding summary of Romans the 6th chapter. Because in Romans 6, Paul is going to show us that the gospel, it is indeed the double cure. Now Paul, of course, being the just kind of master anticipator, he's always anticipating the questions and the objections that maybe will arise in his audience's mind. Paul just knows that as he's been developing some ideas about salvation, he knows there's liable to be some misunderstandings about that. You know, Paul's done just a great job of just talking and bringing that Roman congregation to unity as he's speaking of the fact that that we are all sinners. That's chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then talking as well about how we all have the opportunity to be justified, to be saved by the very same thing. And that, of course, is by grace, chapter 4 and chapter 5. But in light of all that, somebody is bound to say, "Well, well, if we're saved by grace well then what's the point in us even trying to live right? Does that even matter anymore? 
I mean, if we're forgiven by God's grace, then why not just keep on sinning? In fact, sinning more and more so that God's grace is just magnified all the more. I mean, come on. Does it really even matter what we do once we've been saved? Paul says it does matter. In Romans chapter 6, what Paul is going to show is that grace is that double cure. That number one, it takes away the guilt of sin that is working in our hearts. And then furthermore, number two, it takes away the power of sin that is working in our lives. Now if you're familiar at all with Romans chapter 6, then what you probably know about this chapter is that this chapter is very famous for saying a lot of stuff about baptism. And it is a wonderful chapter to go to to learn some things about baptism. In fact, last summer I preached about baptism and I stayed right here in Romans the 6th chapter to do that. This is a great place to establish that baptism is a burial, that it must mean an immersion. This passage will bear that out. It helps us to see the proper mode of baptism. But you need to understand this evening that that's not really Paul's main subject here. Paul's main subject in Romans chapter 6 is grace. And what he wants to argue is that God does something awesome by His grace in baptism. And that awesome thing, it changes us. In fact, it can change us forever. That how we think and how we act towards sin, that it will never be the same again after God has operated upon us in the waters of baptism. Because it is there that the grace of God saves from wrath and makes us pure. Now, as we work through Romans the 6th chapter, what Paul is going to do is he's really just going to answer two main questions. First and foremost, he's going to answer the question, does grace just make sin irrelevant? Is, 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 Is that what grace is going to do for us? And furthermore, is grace, freedom from the law, does that give us a license to just sin kind of willy-nilly? We just do whatever we want. And the answer to both of those questions is the same answer. The answer is absolutely not. By no means is the phrasing that Paul uses in the ESV. He'll use that expression in verse 1 and he'll use it again in verse 15. However, as Paul talks about and addresses these questions about sin in this chapter... You need to understand what Paul means when he talks about sin in this chapter. Paul is not talking here about a specific sin. He's not talking about, hey, you did this one wrong thing, you committed a sin. That's not what he means here when he talks about sin. What Paul's going for, I think really is kind of revealed in verse 14. Can I get ahead of myself? Drop down to verse 14. In verse 14 of Romans chapter 6, he says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Think here about this idea of grace, and think here of this idea about sin. What does Paul mean when he talks about sin here? Well, he describes sin here as being something that is like a monster. In fact, that's something he started to begin talking about in chapter 5. And he's going to keep developing that for the next several chapters. That sin is almost like this, like this dark force. Like it is this beast. It is this monster that enslaves us. That it drags us away into its lair and its den. That sin controls us. It overpowers us whenever we allow it to do that. And that's really what Paul's going for as he talks about sin in this chapter. 
That sin is this alien force that just dominates us. It permeates us and it takes us captive. And what he wants us to see here is that that monster, that monster has been defeated and it is being defeated. That victory, it has been won already on the inside when we are baptized into Christ. But yet even outside, as that battle is still being waged against the devil, the Lord is continuing to fight on our behalf as we try to bring our bodies and bring our lives into subjection to the Lord. And so this monster of sin, it causes a a constant struggle between the inner man, the renewed spirit, and the sin-weakened flesh that we are trying to bring into harmony with Jesus Christ. But what Paul is going to show is he's going to show that by God's grace... We are victorious. The gospel is indeed the double cure. And so with that overview in mind, let's just read a little bit here. Let's read a little bit in Romans chapter 6. Start with me in verse 1. In verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You know, just because God and His grace have forgiven us, that does not mean that we can somehow use that as an excuse to just keep on living in sin. Hey, I've been saved. Well, see you later. I'm just going to go back to doing whatever I want to do. Absolutely not, Paul says. In fact, I want you to please notice the special terms that Paul uses here in these first couple of verses to make sure that we recognize that we're not talking about like a specific isolated sin. No, we're talking about someone who is going off to live in sin. Look at verse 1. He uses the word continue in sin. Verse 2, he uses the expression still living in sin. This isn't talking about a Christian who is trying to serve God, trying to do what's right. I mean, we're trying to please the Lord, but, but we fall from time to time. You know, despite our best efforts, we fail... We give in to temptation, and as a result, we have to humble ourselves before God and repent and ask for His forgiveness. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here, what Paul's describing here, is somebody who's a Christian, or at least calls themselves a Christian, and they just decided they don't care. They're going to do whatever they want to do. I'm not worried about that. I love my sins. I'm not going to give up my sins. I I want to remain in my sins. I want to continue in those things. And then somehow maybe kind of justify my wrongdoing. Paul says that is unthinkable for a child of God. Living in sin while living in Christ, those two ideas are completely incompatible. It's like fire and water. There's just just no way for those things to coexist. Whenever we die to sin, Paul says there in verse 2, righteousness is what becomes the rule of life. And sin must simply become the painful exception. Which leads to verse 3. Verse 3, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I think the key idea here is the idea of death and resurrection. You know, when a person is baptized, what is it that gives that act of baptism its power? Is it the water? Is there something magical and great about the water? Is it anything about the location? 
You know, there's lots of people that are really into this idea of going over to the Holy Land and being baptized in the Jordan River or some other famous body of water, the Sea of Galilee or something like that over there. Is that what gives baptism its power? Is it who baptizes you, who administers the baptism? Is that what gives it its force and its power? Where's the power? The power is in God. God, the one who raises us from those waters and raises us to newness of life. It is God who changes us. He changes us. And think about how different this change is. It is as different as death and life. That's how big that change is. It is such a dramatic change. In baptism, what God does is He changes our relationship with sin. That is our attitude towards sin, how we think about sin, how we perceive sin, what we realize we need to do to deal with sin. All of that is completely different when we're baptized as God's grace works within us. I would, before I leave these verses, I would draw your attention to the words that Paul uses to describe this process because these words that Paul uses are actually very violent terms. We know, of course, when we think about the death of Jesus, that's the comparison being made here, we know that Jesus' death on the cross, that that was an incredibly violent act. It was bloody. It was awful. There was nothing passive about that. There was nothing calm about that. There was nothing pretty about that. No, it was ugly. And it was awful. And it was terrible. And it was torturous. We understand that about Jesus' death. But have we ever stopped and thought about how baptism, our death, our spiritual death, that it also is a very violent term. This actually is a word that is used sometimes outside of Scripture. And this word is sometimes used to describe someone who is drowning. There's actually some writings of old Greek Greek philosophers and they would talk about how a person was drowning and they would describe that in terms of being baptized. It's also used to describe a ship as it is sinking. That ship is being baptized. That's a word that means to be plunged under. Think about it in those contexts. That then becomes a very violent idea. And what Paul says in this passage is he says that just as Jesus died in a very violent way, you too, when you were baptized, you died violently. You died. Your old self, it was killed. It was put to death. God killed it. You know, we look at baptisms and we see that as being just this very pleasant and very calm and very, you know, just a, just a peaceful scene. You know, people come and they, they voluntarily submit themselves to baptism. If I'm the one administering it or someone else is administering it, usually we, we lay that person. We try to do that gently. We don't slam them in the water, but we, we do that gently and lay them back and then bring them back up. Now, there's something very serene and calm about that and beautiful. But Paul actually says here that what's happening inside, what's going on in that water, it's actually not so serene. Because in that act, a violent death is occurring. That old man, that old woman of sin and selfishness, it's fighting and it's pushing against that. And it's trying to remain in there. I don't want to leave this person. I don't want to give this person up. I want to continue to control them. I want to continue to rule and reign in their life. I want to continue to draw them into darkness and into evil. And in that act of baptism, what God does is God kills that old person. That's a profound way of thinking about baptism. Paul continues on, verse 5. 
Verse 5, Paul says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self, here's that old person, it was crucified. Think about how as ugly and as terrible as Jesus' crucifixion was, Paul says that's what's happening to your old man. It is being crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul talks here in these verses about a change. A dramatic change has taken place. That monster that I kind of put the image on the screen up a little bit ago, thinking about the monster of sin, the monster's been slain. Look at the words he uses there in verse 16. It's been brought to nothing. And as a result, we've been set free. We have been released from its terrible clutches, verse 7. The battle for the inner man, it has been won by the grace of God. Paul continues on, verse 8. Verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. I'm going to encourage you as you read there in verse 8, talking there about living with Christ not to immediately think that that's talking about heaven or that that's talking about eternity. There's really nothing in this context and in the whole, in the whole chapter here where Paul's really even talking about eternity. Really what Paul's talking about in this chapter is he's talking about the here and the now. And I believe that's what Paul means here when he talks about living with Christ, that we get to live with Christ. When, when we're baptized, we are united with Him. We are joined together with Him. We can now walk with Him. We now have harmony and unity together. I can now be a Christian as I live my life here upon this earth. We are able to live for Him. We are able to serve and live in devotion to Him now. Verse 9, Paul keeps going with this. Verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Jesus died one time, and in so doing, He delivered that final and decisive blow to sin. Sin has lost its power over those who choose to live with Christ. Verse 11 now, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This very much, verse 12, this is very much, or excuse me, verse 11, this is very much, I think, kind of a self-image verse. If ever you need to kind of, kind of get back to reality, all right, who am I? How do I need to think of myself? Verse 11 ought to help you with that. How do you see yourself as a Christian? Well, you should see yourself, first of all, as being dead to sin. Sin is the enemy. I hate sin. I hate what it has done to me. I hate what it's doing to other people. And furthermore, I need to see myself as being alive to Christ. That Jesus is the hero here. If sin is the enemy, Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the victor here. And so as a result, we hate sin. We hate everything about it. And on the opposite side of that, we delight. We delight in the Lord. We delight in His ways. The way of sin just leads to death, but we know that the way of the Lord... It brings life, both in the, in the now and in the hereafter. Now, verse 12. Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passage, passions. 
Would you notice that Paul acknowledges that even though the war has been won internally, grace has, has done what it needs to do for the inner man, Paul seems to acknowledge here that there is still a battle that is being waged externally. Sin, the devil, will try to use the body. He will try to use your physical body to try and enslave you in sin once again. That's one of his tactics. Even though, all right, the Lord has cleansed you on the inside, the devil still realizes you've got a physical body. You're walking and talking here upon this earth. How can I get that person to use their body to be given over to sin? Paul says, don't do that. Christian, don't do that. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, do not. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The devil just does not give up easily. What the devil will try is he will try to use your physical body to give in to those desires of the flesh, those lusts of the flesh, those things that are so appealing to the carnal side of us. Paul says, don't give the devil that opportunity. Don't give him even an inch. Don't give him a foothold. Instead, what he says there in verse 13, I love this, is he says, use your body for righteousness. And I really like the encouragement. There's a tone in verse 13 that I find very relatable. Paul says, Christian, don't, don't underestimate what you can do. Yeah, the devil is warring against you. And yes, the devil is most certainly powerful. But, but you can do this. You can resist him. You can resist giving your members, using your body for sin and wickedness. Use your body, other, on, the other, on the other hand, use it to serve the Lord. Use it to do things that are right. Use it to do things that are good. In fact, you can do that because God is on your side. God will help you to do that. God will help you to overcome. He then concludes all of that in verse 14 when he says there, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, after reading those first 13 verses, I think maybe we're a little bit surprised at kind of the wording of verse 14. Because Paul says, you know, since you're not under law, that's weird to us because we might expect Paul to say, since you're not under sin. You spent so much time talking about sin, you're no longer under the dominion and the domain of sin anymore. Well, what's he mean here? You're no longer under the law. Well, let's take a kind of a, a little field trip back to the beginning of our Roman study. What is the makeup of this congregation that he's writing to? Well, you got a mixture of Jews and some Gentiles. And some of those Jews would have certainly been thinking to themselves, you know, Paul, what, what we need if we're going to take care of the problem of sin is we need the law. We need that law of Moses that's been so important to us throughout our lives and throughout our history. We need that law. That's the way that we take care of sin. That's the way that we keep it out of our lives. In fact, maybe some of those Jewish brethren were thinking about their Gentile brethren and thinking, hey, I mean, come on, they need something. All these pagan people, they come out of the world, and now they're trying to be Christians. I mean, we've got to give them something. Got to give them some kind of a rule book. Got to give them some kind of a law that they can live by so they can keep sin out of their lives. Well, what Paul wants to say is he wants to say, nope. Nope, the law's not the answer. The law cannot set us free from sin. The law was never able to fully offer forgiveness for anyone. Only grace sets us free. Now, having said that, 
I do think that Paul mentions this stuff about law because he wants to use that kind of as a bridge to the remaining verses here in Romans chapter 6. Because that is a segue to this second question that Paul is going to address beginning in verse 15. Okay, since we are free from the law, well, well, doesn't that just kind of give us a license to sin too? I mean, hey, if we don't got any rules that we got to live by, well, just kind of just go sin it up. And not worry about breaking the law, just do whatever we want to do. You already know what Paul's answer to that is. Verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Absolutely not. What Paul then does in these remaining verses is he challenges his readers not to think in terms so much of law, but instead stop and think about who it is that you are serving. Who exactly is it that is your master? You know, as if somehow the thought that the law, well, you know, the law is going to totally determine what we do and what we say and what we think. No, 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 you need to think beyond just the law. You need to think about the lawgiver. You need to think about who it is that is your master. I'm going to go ahead and say right here, we're going to read some verses here in just a moment talking about slavery and masters and so forth. These are challenging verses for us to read as Americans. Because as Americans, we don't have a master. In fact, we left England years and years ago because we didn't like having a master in that sense. We don't bow down to a king. We don't give obeisance to an emperor. We live in a democracy, and in fact, we're very, very happy with that democracy way of living. And so we don't feel like we have to worry about all this master stuff. Paul says, oh, oh, you need to think that again. Because everybody has a master. Everybody is serving something or someone. And that's exactly what he goes on to say in verse 16. Verse 16 now. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Notice that Paul says it's it's one of two things here. You're either serving sin and self, which leads to no good place. Or you are serving the Lord and you are a slave of righteousness. Those are your only two choices. And every person on the face of the earth fits into one of those two categories. So so who's your master? Verse 17. Verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once the slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. The key idea here is that Christians, we have chosen to make ourselves the slaves of God. And it is God's grace that is the driving motivator in us making that decision. We don't need a bunch of laws. We don't need a bunch of rules to keep us away from sin. We don't need a bunch of, I'm telling you to do this and I'm forcing you to do that in order to be obedient unto God. No, as Christians, we serve God because because we want to. Because we realize what a gracious gift has been given to us in salvation. We choose to do that. We do that of our own volition. We love God. We love Him so much, and so in return, we want to show gratitude. We want to do what is right. 
We've had all that living in sin stuff that we care for for one lifetime. We don't want that anymore. We're done with it. We've been set free and now we have made ourselves willingly the slaves of the Lord. You know, that's not a completely foreign idea. In New Testament times, it was not uncommon for people to choose voluntary slavery. If maybe you and your family were in a financial hardship for whatever reason, you maybe would choose to make yourself a slave of someone. That would help to provide some, some maybe meager wages, but if nothing else, it would provide you, you know, a roof over your head and food on the table every day. Well, in the same way, we have presented ourselves to God in order to serve Him. We've chose to be slaves. Now in verse 19, Paul really wants to kind of take this slavery metaphor just as far as he possibly can. But I kind of appreciate verse 19 as a preacher. Because as a preacher, you know, I'm always trying to, to use illustrations and you know, metaphors and figures of speech to try to describe stuff. And Paul kind of acknowledges in verse 19 that he's, he's kind of struggling with that here to get his audience to understand. But he is. He's going he's to push the limits of this slavery metaphor. Verse 19 he says there, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. I think the point Paul's just trying to get at here is, what is the end result of being a slave to sin? If that's who you choose to be your master, if sin is who you choose to be your master, where does that ultimately lead? It just leads to more and more sin. It just leads to lawlessness is the word that he used. Sin just gets worse. It just gets more and more disgusting. It gets more and more depraved. It gets more and more sickening. In fact, I think we saw a little bit of that in Romans the first chapter when Paul talked about some of those early races, those early Gentiles, and how this led to this, led to this, led to this. And that's just kind of the way sin operates. And not coincidentally, this actually answers the question that began chapter 6. The question was asked, shall we continue in sin? The answer is given right here. <laughs> no. Because sin just leads to more and more sin. And so by contrast, what he says is he says righteousness. When you make yourself a slave of righteousness, what's that lead to? What that leads to is that leads to sanctification. It leads to more and more righteousness. Do the right thing. just leads to doing more of the right thing. It leads you to being more and more like Christ. More and more like the Lord. And that, of course, as Christians, that's exactly what we want, isn't it? It's what we're striving for, striving to be like our Master. Verse 20, Paul's about to finish it all. Verse 20 now. Paul says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. That's absolutely true, isn't it? That's just kind of a statement of fact. That sinners, they don't care. You're just free. Your conscience doesn't bother you when you're out living in sin. You're not worried about what God thinks. You're not worried about you know, paying attention to His Word. You know, Sinners didn't get up this morning, get up early and come to Bible class. Sinners didn't get up today and come to church. Sinners didn't come back this evening at 6 o'clock for services again, did they? No, they're, they're free from those obligations. They're not concerned about it. They're not interested in that. Verse 21 now. But what fruit, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. You know, I don't know if there were any teenagers, any young people 
in the church at Rome when this letter was sent to them. But I would suggest to you that verse 21, that's the verse for teenagers in this chapter. You know, as teenagers, there is just an enormous temptation to just say, I'm just, I'm just tired of the whole God thing. I'm just not interested in this. Just chunk the whole thing. I don't want it. I don't, I don't, I don't like getting up on early on Sunday and going to church. I don't like all this stuff about you know, trying, to, trying to do what's right and listening to other people. I want to be free of that. I want to do what I want to do. Teenagers, let me just use Paul's words here. What fruit ultimately do you get from that? What good comes from that? Paul says nothing. Nothing good comes from that. Because at some point you're going to grow up and maybe you'll have a light bulb moment where you will realize that that was shameful. That was awful. What a waste of time. Well, what a wasted part of your life. Looking back at all the rebellion that you lived in, being self-centered and only caring about yourself, you look back on that and think, why did I do that? I'm so ashamed of that. I know of Christians today that have told me that very thing. They're so ashamed of the fact that they waited so long to obey the gospel because they look back at all the wasted years and they just think, what a waste. What fruit did I get from that? Nothing. Nothing. If it weren't for the grace of God, what would it have led to? What's the end of verse 21 say? The end of those things is death. In fact, notice the great contrast that he then does in verse 22. Verse 22, Paul says there, But now, now that you have been set free from sin and you've become the slaves of God, now the fruit that you get, it leads to sanctification. And what is it? its end? Eternal life. I mean, how much more simple could that be? How much more of a, of a simple reason would a person ever need not to go back into sin? It's either life or it's death. I want life. I'd like to think that most rational thinking humans prefer life over death. All that then leads to the, probably the most famous verse in this chapter, verse 23. Verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, much has been said about that verse just many times before. I've said lots about that verse. But maybe the thing that I'd like to say about that verse this evening is I'd like for you to notice that the verse does not say, for the wages of sin is death, but the wages of Christianity is eternal life. That's not what the verse says. We don't earn eternal life. Now, you're going to live in sin? You do earn death. You do earn destruction and problems and all the terrible things that go along with that. But when it comes to eternal life, we, we, that's not the result of wages. No, it is a gift. And that's exactly the terminology that Paul uses there. It is the gracious gift of God. And it is something that we absolutely cannot pass up. In fact, notice here how the end of chapter 6... Really, in many ways, it mirrors the end of chapter 5. Paul's kind of doubled down. There's some symmetry here as he talks here about grace and about how grace leads to eternal life. What a marvelous chapter chapter 6 is. You know, in Romans chapter 5, we learn so much about assurance of our salvation in Christ. And in chapter 6, Paul has helped us to see what that means for us as we try to live in the present, that we have been set free from the dominion of sin so that sin is no longer a characteristic part of our lives, we now live for the Lord. 
It is the double cure. It is the double cure that we need. The second verse of that song, Rock of Ages, goes like this. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All these for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. I think in many ways that is the message of the whole book of Romans. And that is especially the message right here in Romans chapter 6. That once we were enslaved to sin, we were dead, we were serving the things that only brought about more sin and more death. But God has set us free by His grace to serve sin no longer. There's not enough good deeds we could do. There's not enough law-keeping that we could do. There's not enough thank yous we could say, enough prayers that we could offer. We are freed from sin by God's grace and His mercy. And we are free now to serve Him, to be a slave of righteousness. As Paul said earlier in the chapter, thanks be to God that we know His grace and we have received that gift, the gift of eternal life. Maybe I ought to ask as we get ready to sing number 368, Rock of Ages. Maybe I ought to ask, have you secured that gracious gift of eternal life? Have you done what the first part of this chapter talks about? Have you been baptized into the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that your sins could be washed away? A very violent thing is taking place there, but it is a needed violent act as the old man of sin is being put to death. Have you done that? If you haven't, why not? If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and I really would like to assume that anybody who comes to church on a Sunday evening, at bare minimum, you do believe that Jesus is God's Son, that you do believe He is the Savior of the world, why then would you not submit yourself to Him and enjoy the blessings of being in a relationship with Christ Jesus? All things are prepared this evening. There is a pool of water right back here. There's garments in the back. Myself and others will be glad to assist you in becoming a Christian tonight. And as Romans 6 has bore out for us, the Lord will help you every step of the way. If there's somebody here this evening who has taken those initial steps, but you have not been living for the Lord as you should, you've not been trusting Him, you've maybe not allowed that grace that God poured out on you in baptism to continue to motivate you to serve Him as you should, Repent of that, brother or sister. Come back to Him. If you're away from God and you need the prayers and the encouragement of, of the congregation here, we are most ready and most willing to do that this evening. You simply need to come to the front need to make that known. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.